All right, Acts 6, 1 through 7. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, Nicholas, and a, uh, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. This last March, uh, as I started here, I also had the opportunity to go to the Exponential Church Planting Conference in Orlando, Florida. Florida's still hot in March, really humid. <laughs> uh, it's a huge conference for those who are involved in church planting. There's about 5,000 church planting or church planting adjacent people. It was an awesome conference. One of my favorite speakers from the conference was this man named Reverend Kelvin Walker. And he's a district superintendent actually in the Christian Missionary Alliance. He's in the Metropolitan District. For those of you who aren't knowledgeable, that's like New York City. So he oversees Metropolis, so Metropolitan District. He's a brilliant man, but his main point that he made in his sermon in March has stuck with me, and it was something like this, if you let me summarize it. When the Spirit of God comes on the people of God, everybody gets a gift and everybody gets to play. Everybody has a role. We're all part of Christ's church, the body. We're all a part, and yes, we each have a part to play. We could look at this another way. We're all part of the body, and we each have a part we need to play. We need to be engaged. That's when the body fully thrives. For a lot of churches through the years, there's a tendency to find a few willing and gifted people and engage them in everything and anything. We call that the 10% principle. 10% do 90%. It's an interesting principle. While it may work for a time, we often see burnout where these people leave or the mission fails because they're too overwhelmed or people get mad because things aren't getting done the way they should. But we need the Spirit of God and the people of God where everybody has a gift and everybody gets to play. That's what we kind of see working out here. Let me pray as we get into the text. So now, Lord, I pray that your Spirit would move mightily. Lord, that you would illuminate the truths in this text, that you would help us look more and more like your son, Christ. We need you here now, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the joys of going through books of the Bible as a church is sometimes it feels like you get to certain passages at just the right time. This passage, I just think, is poignant to where we are as a church. So I'm grateful to how God works um, as we read through Acts, we get glimpses of the early church. I don't know about you, it's easy to kind of romanticize what they were about. They were a dynamic group of believers. It was exciting. They did so much stuff well, but they were not perfect, nor was the church perfect. In this section, we get to see a little bit of the not perfect coming out. And it starts because the church was doing what it was supposed to be doing, and it was doing it well. Let's look at verse 1 at the beginning. It says, In those days, 
as the disciples were increasing in number. So that's the stage that's set. The church is growing and not just fringe clout chasers. It says the disciples were growing in number. Those who had chosen to follow Jesus, those who said that they must obey God rather than people, those who had counted the cost and said that following Jesus is better, those people were increasing in number. Praise God. That should be like, oh, happy story. That could be the end and we'd be happy, but it goes on. Verse 1, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. So in the midst of all this growth, and remember, if we can take Luke seriously, and I think we can, the church is likely above 15,000 people at this point. That's a first century megachurch and a half. (laughs) There rose a surface, to the surface, an issue, a complaint. Namely, the complaint was about administration. The administration about distributing food to widows. It was the tradition in the culture at this time that should a woman's husband die, it would be the responsibility of that woman's family to take care of them. And a point to remember, in this time, in this society, it's the norm for women to not work. It would be very strange for women to work outside the house. For a lot of women, their only source of income and security was through marriage. And so when their husband died, yeah, that's a big deal all the time, but when their husband died, they had no way to supply for themselves. They were hung out to dry in many ways. What seems to be happening here is that so many people converting had forsaken their family, their Jewish families. And in doing so, it meant that when there was a widow, there was no immediate relational family to take care of them. Also notice that there's this distinction we read between Hebraic Jews and Hellenistic Jews. Hellenistic Jews raised a complaint against the Hebraic Jews. If you remember all the way back in Acts 2 at Pentecost, we see that there were pilgrims from all over the Roman world who were in Jerusalem for the festival, the Pentecost festival. The common language for the Roman world at this time wasn't Latin, it was Greek, Koine Greek. It was the language of trade. In fact, Greek culture was the norm over most of the area, little history nugget, because of Alexander the Great. He had conquered pretty much that whole territory and beyond, then after he fell down, Rome kind of cleaned up everything and conquered it again. The Romans occupied all of that territory, But much of the culture and language remained Greek. This was known as Hellenistic culture. Now we have tribalism playing out here. For Hebraic Jews, Hebrew Jews, Jews who lived in the area, they would have spoken Aramaic. That's the language Jesus would have spoken too. They typically lived in Israel, and they thought of the Hellenistic Jews, or Greek Jews, as second class They had forsaken their culture, their language, had capitulated to the Roman and Greek culture. But you see, there's a problem. After Pentecost, a bunch of Hellenistic Jews were saved and had joined the church. So we have this really interesting cultural dynamic playing out in the church, especially because the Hellenistic Jewish people and their widows were likely staying with and are at the mercy of the Hebraic Jews. They're completely at the mercy of those who live there. And that leads to the complaint Obviously, many people had left their families to join this church, and the widows were starting to not get what they felt like they needed. So the church, again, they would typically help with food and any other things in need, but this would have been a lot easier when the church was all of 100 people. That would have been a lot easier. We're at 15,000. It's easy when we're even a church this small, when someone's in need, when we go to the grocery store to just remember, oh, I can pick that up for that person but the church is in thousands. 
and it's becoming difficult to make sure that people are cared for. And there's apparently favoritism, potentially racism at play here. It's a big deal, but that's the essence of the complaint. Verse 2, the twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. So the twelve, these are the apostles, they're the humans charged with the leadership of the church. Apostles. They, they hear of the complaint, or maybe they even fielded the complaint themselves, and their response is to call the whole company together. They address the issue head on. They start, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. This phrase, when I first read it, it kind of comes off a little elitist. It can kind of, oh, we're so far above that. I don't think that's what they're actually getting at. The idea is that the apostles' job was the preaching of the word. They were in the temple and in homes daily teaching and instructing. And let's not forget, they've already been in prison like twice already. It's not like it was an easy job, but that's what they were called to do. It was a full-time job. So for them to do other administrative duties would mean that the proclamation of God's word through their teaching would have to be lessened. That's why they say it would not be right for us to give it up. In other words, it could be wrong. They were doing what they were called to do. So it's not that they're demeaning the task. They're literally saying it would not be right for them to do that. Also, the word, the CSB, which is the translation I've been using, translates to wait, the to wait on tables. That can be translated a different way, and I think it helps. The Greek word comes from the word diakonos, which is where we get the term deacon from later in Scripture. It literally means to serve or to minister. So to wait on tables, that makes us think of like Applebee's and the waitress. What they're talking about is to serve people food, to minister to people's physical needs. Look at verse 3. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom whom we can appoint to this duty. The solution they offer is really simple. The whole congregation should select seven men who are well thought of, demonstrate the presence of the spirit in their lives, and are wise, and they'll be appointed to this job of serving or deaconing. And the apostles, verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So they should select others to oversee the administration of food so that the apostles can devote themselves to prayer and ministry of the word. Side note here that I think is really profound before we continue on. How beautiful is it that the apostles say that they want to devote themselves to prayer? And that's even listed before ministry of the word. For many people, pastors included, I know a few of them. <laughs> For many people, pastors included, we make prayer like a secondary item. We know it's important. We know it's what we should do, but it doesn't feel like things are getting done when we do it. So when push comes to shove, what's, what, what are we going to throw out? Most of the time, it's prayer. But prayer for Christ, prayer for the apostles, and honestly, for most of the effective disciples throughout the last 2,000 years, prayer has been the main thing. As we've said this morning, but in the CMA, prayer is the primary work of God's people. One of my favorite thinkers and writers and pastors in recent history is this man called Francis Chan. He wrote a book called Letters to the Church, and he's describing how they started a house church network in San, Diego, uh, San Francisco, 
And they're big on developing leaders and starting other little microchurches. It's really cool. It was really inspiring to me when we moved out to South Dakota to start a church. But when they're selecting and working on training new leaders, pastors, house church facilitators, do you know what one of their core markers is? One of the things they ask them? Are you devoting yourself to prayer for at least one hour a day? That's the benchmark. Okay, yeah, that, that reaction that some of you guys have was what I had when I read it. Like, whoa, <laughs> no. The answer was no. Honestly, an, an hour a day seemed like a huge hurdle. But why is that? I mean, think about it. We know that prayer is important. Christ has won for us. He's the mediator. We can go before the, the throne of the almighty God of the universe. And yet, for so many of us, we, we just don't. Maybe we don't even know how to do it, and I would submit the American church has just done a poor job in teaching, showing, encouraging believers to be with God through prayer. Yes, church is important. What we're doing is important. Scripture, highly important, all of that. Everything should be done in and through prayer. As Paul would say, pray without ceasing. That's much more than an hour. For the apostles, they devoted themselves to prayer. It's an active thing. It's like on their eye calendar, they mark off an hour every day. Nothing, that's this holy time. Nothing else can interfere that. It takes priority. Prayer is the stuff. What's the stuff? Prayer is the stuff. Prayer is communion with God, being with God. There is nothing quite so special as taking time and going into the presence of God, knowing that he is with you, he hears you, and is even speaking to you in that space. It is incredibly important to them to devote time to prayer and to continue in the proclamation of God's word in the streets, in the temple, in the houses of the early church. Verse 5, this proposal pleased the whole company, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. The church liked the proposal, and that might be a miracle in and of itself sometimes. Then we get a list of all the people they chose. Stephen, who's marked as a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, he's going to take center stage here in the coming chapters, so just remember that name, Stephen. That's probably why he's included first in the list. Philip, who will be front and center in chapter 8. Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, not from St. Nicholas with reindeer, Nicholas from Antioch. What's interesting to note, and several commentators have pointed this out, all of these men seem to have Hellenistic or Greek names. That's interesting. So the whole company, likely predominantly Hebraic Jews, that's where they're at, predominantly Hebraic. They hear the complaint of the Hellenistic families, and instead of getting defensive and petty, they choose Hellenistic men who fit the characteristic. That is wise. They chose to truly listen. They chose to act and make it right. They didn't just do the bare minimum. They went above and beyond. There's risk there. Think about that risk. If there's actual tension between the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews, and there's people not getting enough food, how bold is it then to be like, you know what, you're right, we are wrong, we're going to give you the authority. There's risk there. The whole company, in order to make things right, chooses Hellenistic believers to serve in this diaconate role. That means the seven new ministers could choose to get retribution and make the Hebraic Jews pay. But there's such trust, there's such commitment, there's such love that that's who they choose. They want to make sure they do community and church correctly. Verse 6, 
they had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the seven are invited in front of the whole congregation to go in front of the apostles, and there's prayer of commission and a laying on of hands. Now that phrase, laid on their hands or laid their hands on them, is one that has caused a whole bunch of confusion over time. That can mean like negative things, like, oh, they laid their hands on them. That can mean like they beat them up. I don't think that's what's going on here. New Testament uses that a little differently. I want to quote a little bit from an article from David Mathis. He's an editor at Desiring God. Here's what he says about laying on of hands. With both the laying on of hands and anointing with oils, the elders come before God in special circumstances with a spirit of prayer and particular requests. But whereas anointing with oil asks for healing, the laying on of hands asks for blessing for forthcoming ministry. Laying on of hands then, like anointing or fasting or other external rituals for the church, is not magic and does not, as some claim, automatically confer grace. Rather, it is a means of grace and accompanies words of commendation and corporate prayer for those who believe. Like baptism, the laying on of hands is a kind of inaugural sign and ceremony, an initiating rite, a way of making an invisible reality visible, public, and memorable, both for the candidate and the congregation. It would serve as a means of grace to the candidate in affirming God's call through the church and providing a tangible, physical moment to remember when things get hard. All in all, and this is important, the giver and the blesser is God. He extends and expands the ministry of the leaders. He calls, sustains, and makes them fruitful. He enriches, matures, and catalyzes the congregation to love and good works, to minister to each other and beyond, served by the teaching, wisdom, and faithful leadership of the newly appointed elder, deacon, or missionary. So this laying on of hands, it's a physical example of a spiritual reality, affirming the authority calling placed on the seven men. And what is the result? Let's look at the final verse of this section, verse 7. So the word of God spread, the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. The complaint handled, the church grew, increased greatly in number. Sometimes a church stops its growth not because of a spiritual reason, not a doctrinal issue, nothing like that. Sometimes it seems they stop because of administrative issues. Logistical reasons, like a church growing so fast and so large that they have to take a break and address the best way to figure out how to care for everybody. There is this awesome reality that we see play out here. And Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians, but that is this phrase, God is a God of order. He wants the body to operate well and orderly. He wants people to take care of each other. He wants people to serve because let's be honest about this. God could have, if he wanted to, has spiritually and miraculously just made it so that food rained down from the ceiling in the widow's houses so they wouldn't need people to bring them food. He could have done that. He could have intervened in some supernatural way. But God chose to use humanity and their natural given ability to plan, help, administer, and care. It's beautiful. When God created the cosmos, he created things orderly. He created it that even in its natural state, for lack of a better term, things operate perfectly. And yes, then the fall happened and sin messed everything up, but there's still this created order. Orderly sequences throughout creation. And when we see and operate in those niches, taking care of each other in an orderly way, we join the symphony of creation, praising God, who is an excellent creator. 
That's what we see playing out here. God was able to, through the church, put the right people in the right spots, and the church thrived. Was it supernatural? Well, sure, the Holy Spirit was involved, but this is just a natural thing. The organization got big, so get the right people in the right place. And we get this interesting note at the end of verse 7. A large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Those who were thoroughly entrenched in the Jewish temple system, those who were directly under the authority of the high priest who had already beaten and arrested the apostles, a large group of those people became obedient to the faith. This is an interesting shift in power that we see. Way back in Acts 4, verse 1, we read explicitly that priests were among a group of people opposing the apostles. Now, several weeks and two chapters later, a large group of them have now become convinced that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God and King. He died as a sacrifice for sins and has risen from the dead. They became obedient to the faith which implies that they didn't just give mental assent to a certain doctrine, but they obeyed what the Lord commanded them to do through faith. That's an incredible testimony. Those who opposed the work of God got rescued, and now they've joined the family of faith. So with this whole text in view, I want to draw out one application before we move to our so what for today. Observation. Some scholars would call this passage the institution of deacons of the church. Some have grown up hearing the word deacon and elder, and that can kind of seem like inside baseball terms. So I just want to tease them out a little bit, and I think it's really important. God's a God of order. We know from 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, that the Holy Spirit indwells and empowers believers for the work of the ministry. We call those spiritual gifts, like a gift of faith, a gift of discernment, a gift of service, etc. We also know from 1 Timothy and Titus and some narrative sections, that there are different offices inside the church, different roles, different structures, different authorities. We read clearly at the head of the church is a really important guide. Anyone know who the head of the church is? Sunday school answer. Jesus! Yeah, Jesus is the head of the church. Not a trick question. Sometimes we glaze past that, but that should stick with us. We don't just like play pretend like Jesus is the head of his church. This is Christ's church. Then after that, we had the apostles during the apostolic age who facilitated both the birth of the church, wrote scripture through the spirit, helped mold the framework of what church would look like. But again, right now, there's no one qualified to fill the role of apostle. We read back in Acts 1 that the the things you needed to do were to have been with Jesus from his baptism to his ascension. Anyone? Anyone? Been with Jesus since baptism? Okay, me either. Okay, the only kind of add-on to that we see is the Apostle Paul. And even he says that he's the least of the apostles. This role, this leadership of the church has passed from apostles, which is a closed office, to elders. Elders are spiritual leaders, teachers, shepherds of local church. We read about their qualifications, if you want to read a list of qualifications, in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and Titus 1, 6 through 9. The office of elder is a place of spiritual leadership, particularly teaching and shepherding the local church. In other places, we see this office described as overseers or bishops. Most scholars now agree that that's all one office, elder, overseer, bishop, all refer to one office with different terminology. So that's the Jesus, then we have elders. The second office in the church we see played out in scripture is that of deacons. 
We find Paul give the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. And again, maybe even this passage today, Acts 6, the seven are a precursor or like a proto-deacon. Remember the word for serving is diakonos. A deacon is a role of leadership, but the function seems to be more about administration, logistics, rather than spiritual authority and shepherding. So the elders and deacons are to, in love and cooperation, serve the church through shepherding and teaching if an elder, and administration and service if a deacon. These are offices that are to be discerned as a community and are given to certain individuals, and the rest of the community is to do our best to submit to that decision. Now, different denominations and different churches do this different ways and call it different things, but it's important to remember how we get this idea. God gives every believer different gifts, different callings, and he gives us different roles. God is a God of order. Which brings us to our question for today of so what? When I'm praying, okay, so what, God? What about this passage? Everybody has a role to play. There's something for you in this church that God has created you for and empowered you for. It's not leadership and eldership for everyone. It may not be music and singing. We know if you're not gifted at music and singing, you can't lie to us. (laughs) It may be helping with children, with sound, with evangelism, with announcements, with prayer, with missions, with youth, with logistics, with administration of food. It could be pioneering new ministries that we haven't even dreamed of yet because we need you to help us get there. Friends, when the Spirit of God comes on the people of God, everybody gets a gift and everybody gets to play. The church in Acts needed the seven to deacon, to serve, so that the message could still be preached by the apostles and the church could grow. We, our church, the seed community church, humbly, we need you. We need you. And so the question is, who has God created you to be? What's your role? What's your gift? How has he gifted you? How can you love and serve your family and the church in and out of that? Some notes here. It begins with, you guessed it, prayer. Begins with prayer. God, what have you gifted me to do? Where do I fit in this? What am I passionate about? What dreams do I have for spiritual revival in southeastern South Dakota? discipleship, training. We want to be a church where the gifts of the Spirit are activated and that people are encouraged to serve in an orderly and God-honoring way. God has chosen us, His church, to be agents of reconciliation with the world. That still just blows my mind that the infinite God of the universe would choose to partner with us. We are His agents of reconciliation. So don't feel like you aren't spiritual enough or gifted enough to be meaningly involved. We need you. Those deacons might not have felt like, oh, the apostles, they're so holy. They were special people, but Peter denied Christ three times on the night he was betrayed. Everybody has a gift and everybody needs to play. So I would just invite you to prayerfully get involved. You know, we're still trying to figure out as a new church what we need and what we're doing. If you've got dreams and ideas, would you talk to us? We would love to figure that out. If you see things that maybe aren't being done or need to get done or you think can be done better, lean in. This is what we do. I'm going to pray for us. Uh, Why doesn't the worship team come back up? Friends, our core team has been meeting over the past couple months, and we'll go over this in a sermon. And you've heard me say this a couple times, but we've decided on a vision statement for the church 
and that's to raise the spiritual temperature of southeastern South Dakota. So what is it that we want to do as a church? We want to raise the spiritual temperature of southeastern South Dakota. So that might be done just in here, helping set up or take down chairs. That does help, believe it or not. It really does. It might be pioneering a new house church in Canton. I don't know. We don't know. But we're inviting you to lean in. Let's pray.